Kiddos, you can be dismissed to your class in the back. Your teachers will be waiting for you back there. <clears throat> for those of you who remain, we're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of John. Chapter 15, we're considering kind of a two-part series from John 15, verse 1, all the way through verse 16. We might call it Christ and the Christian. John chapter 15. For those of you who brought your Bibles, you can open up there. If you did not bring a Bible, or you don't have one, or your phone is dead, well, then you can grab one of the church Bibles in front of you. We have English and Korean Bibles, depending on how ambitious you're feeling. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, which is in the New Testament, the fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in chapter 15, which is close to the end. Jesus' final discourse to his disciples, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through 16. Really, we're going to focus on 9 through 16, but I want to read the whole thing for the sake of context. <clears throat> but before I do, the notion of love in our culture is an interesting thing, isn't it? That for centuries upon centuries... The idea of love had built into it moral components. That love was something that was rooted in objective realities outside of us. That it was something to be emulated. It was something that had to do not so much with our own interest, but with the interests of others. That love is always outward looking, looking at others. But something strange has happened slowly over the course of the last I would say a couple hundred years in the West. And that is as the notion of objective truth has been undermined and the notion of truth has moved inwardly to subjective realities, the whole definition of love, its grounds, its nature, its definition has radically changed as well. Love is not something that is defined objectively anymore. In fact, we might say as a culture that we can't really define anything objectively anymore. Everything is to be understood subjectively, according to the subject. And not just individually, but by whatever community I find myself in, that community helps me to make sense, gives me meaning and reality, and so love can, in fact, have many different contradictory definitions depending on the community of which you're a part. But there's one thing that love cannot do in our culture. Love cannot not affirm or fail to affirm another person's definition of love. In fact, love in our culture today and eschewing all objective realities, those realities outside of us, rooted not just in creation, which reveals the glory of God, but in God himself, who is by his very nature love, and by moving our definitions of love inwardly, individually, communally, subjectively, well then really love is you affirming me at all costs, and whatever it is that I want to be affirmed in. That may be in my own choice of lifestyle. That may be in how I understand my own gender and sexuality. That may be in the way that I think about 
about marriage and family and other moral issues, but at the end of the day, the most intolerant thing in our culture is intolerance. And the most unloving thing is not to affirm me in every way that I think I need to be affirmed. But the chief sin today is really to disagree. Because to disagree is to point to a truth outside of me that I would have to submit myself to. And I won't do that. John 15 gives us a helpful corrective in defining love. And what it does is it's going to take us and our eyes off of ourselves. It's going to take our eyes and, and, and have us gaze at the glory, not just of Jesus, but of the triune God, who is love and has been for all of eternity. And out of that love created everything. And out of that love is reconciling all things through the blood of the cross. So hang with me. John 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Now already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. For as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, well neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, well then he's thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, well then so I've loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, well then you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now these things I've spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is the inspired word of God. It is without error, and it is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness that every single one of us would be equipped for every good work. May the Lord write it on, his, on our hearts that we'd walk in it to his glory. Well, on the one hand, this passage is really easy to understand. It's about the relationship between the vine and the branches. And the fruit that the branches bear whenever they get their life and their sustenance from the vine. 
It's an easy agricultural image to understand, but in another way, it's a chapter that raises profound and perplexing questions. How can a branch be in the vine and yet be fruitless? And what does it mean to remain in Christ and to remain or abide in his love? Well, we looked at verses 1 through 8, really 1 through 11 last week. We're going to back it up a little bit, beginning in verse 9, because in verse 9 through 16, we're going to see Jesus' explanation and his application of the picture that we see in the first eight verses of the vine and the branches. It says, how does this ultimately play itself out on Monday morning in real life? Well, last week what we saw was that we grow in joys, we grow in holiness. That's that idea of bearing fruit, that we become more effective, that we become more godly, that is godlike in our character. Peter says that we become partakers of the divine nature so that we would become effective and not fruitless. Same thing that Jesus is teaching here according to John. And if our joy is tied to our holiness, then our holiness is ultimately tied to our abiding in Christ. But now we're going to get into a few more practical things. He's going to dive into the theological nature. He's going to, in these coming verses, he's going to shift the imagery a little bit to help us better understand what he's taught in the first eight verses. So he's got the principles in verse 1 through 8. And now we're looking at Jesus' explanation and application of those principles. That Jesus is, in a sense, saying the same thing that the old Puritan Richard Sibbs said. Let us show our understandings by our practice. That's what verse 9 all the way through verse 16 is about. Here's the big idea of the text if you're taking notes. It's my sermon in a sentence. That we love God by loving Christ. Really, it's three sentences, but they're really short. We love God by loving Christ. We love Christ by obeying his commands. And we obey his commands by loving one another. We love God by loving Christ. We love Christ by obeying his commands. And we obey his commands by loving one another. Well, beginning in verse 9 through verse 16, we're going to see four points. In verse 9, we're going to see that Christ loves like his Father. Christ loves like his Father. And then in verses 10 through 14, we're going to see our second point, that Christ loves and we obey. Christ loves and we obey. And in verse 15, we'll see our third point, that Christ reveals and we understand. Christ reveals and we understand. Then finally, in verse 16, Christ chooses and we bear fruit. So we're going to see three core ideas rooted in Christ loving like the Father. That he loves, he reveals, and he chooses. And we obey, understand, and we bear fruit. That's what we're going to see in the course of these handful of verses. Well, let's consider our first point. Christ loves as the Father loves. Here in verse 9, Jesus is going to take us back to a relationship that's more basic, that is more fundamental than the relationship between the vine and the branches. And that is the relationship between the vine and the vine dresser. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine. And he says, my father is the vine dresser. Well, now he's explaining that further in verse 9. As my father has loved me, so I have loved him you. Jesus here in verse 9 explains that his relationship to the Father and the Father's relationship to the Son conditions and models the relationship between the vine and the branches, that is between Christ and the Christian. And we see two things, 
Two things that are true of the relationship between the Father and the Son that are also true of the relationship between Christ and the Christian. The first thing that we're going to see is that it's an organic relationship. It's an organic relationship. Secondly, we're going to see that it is an invisible relationship. An invisible relationship. First of all, we note that this relationship between Jesus and his Father, the Father who has loved him, and the Father whom Jesus loves, it's an organic relationship. And what he's saying is just as there's this organic relationship between the Father and the Son, well, there's an organic relationship between, the, between Christ and the Christian. That the same life that is found in the Father is found in the Son. He is God, very God. One and the same with the Father from all eternity. And the Father's life is seen in the life of the Son. That He reveals the Father. You want to know what the life of the Father is like? You look to the Son. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of His glory. So He reveals the Father's life. And the Son's life as we discover throughout the Gospel of John and elsewhere, is the only source of eternal life, and that life flows now, energizes the life of every believer. That's what we looked at last week. He is the vine, we are the branches. There's an organic connection. But I want to consider something maybe a little bit less familiar, and that's that there's also an invisible relationship. An invisible relationship. That the whole of Christ's ministry on earth depends upon his unbroken contact with his invisible Father. Just turn to your left a little bit to John chapter 5. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 5. Jesus is speaking specifically about where his own authority comes from. Where does he get off speaking the way that he does and doing the things that he does? Well, he's going to explain beginning in verse 19. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So here in 19, we see that the Son does what the Father does, that apart from the Father, the Son can do Nothing. Beginning of verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And then he picks it up in verse 21, and he says this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So what we see here is that the Father's love for the Son is demonstrated in the fact that Christ gives life just as the Father gives life and that Christ is the ultimate judge of everyone. And the whole reason that Christ is able to do that is because his Father willed it. That's why he says down in verse 30, Jesus says, I cannot do anything apart from my Father. He says, beginning of verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. Only as I hear do I judge, and yet my judgment is just. Why? Because his judgments are his Father's judgments. That he is working in concert with his Father. So you see this relationship between Jesus and his humanity and God, the invisible God, whom he is in constant, ongoing communion, and how Jesus is carrying out the will of the Father who's invisible on earth. He is 
the visible incarnation of God, making the invisible God visible. Well, he's going to apply the same principles in John chapter 15, because in 15, go back there, Jesus is telling his disciples that he too will become invisible. He says that actually earlier in chapter 14, that he's going to go away from them. He's going to leave them. That he too is going to become invisible, just like the Father's invisible. And so what he's saying is, what I modeled during my earthly ministry in terms of my relationship to the invisible Father, you will have to emulate in your relationship to me, your invisible Lord. The same kind of communion I enjoyed with the Father is a communion that you're going to enjoy with me, even though you won't see me anymore. How does that work? Well, Jesus is going to say that when you relate to me in this way, well, then it is essentially to the glory of the Father. The glory of the Son cannot be separated from the glory of the Father. So to glorify me is to glorify the Father. In fact, that's what we see here. Look at verse 8. It is to the Father's glory, verse 8. It is to the exaltation, verse 9, of the Father's love. It is to the recognition and submission, verse 10, of the Father's commands. It is to come into understanding and knowledge, verse 15, of the Father's self-revelation. And verse 16, it is to be the recipient of the Father's gracious generosity. That as you have communion with me and abide in me, though I won't be with you, it is to the exaltation of the Father's glory and grace. Because I cannot be separated from my Father. So we see here in verse 9 that the model of this relationship between the vine and the branches, between Christ and the Christian, is the relationship that the Son has with the Father. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's a staggering truth. The love that Christ has for us is a love that has existed among the persons of the Trinity from before the foundations of the world. Brothers and sisters, this is an eternal, unchanging, inexhaustible love because that is the very nature of God himself. For God's love to be anything less than eternal, unchanging, and inexhaustible is for God to be less than God and to cease to be God. It therefore makes him dependent upon his creation in some way to make him loving. The beauty of a triune God is he's had an object for his love from all of eternity. He doesn't need us. It just means that he's an eternal fount whereby his love pours over into what he's created and whom he's redeeming. That's an amazing notion. It's an inexhaustible love, an unchanging love. As unchanging as God is, as eternal as God is, as inexhaustible and immutable as God is. And it's not just that God loves. It's that God is love. It's who he is. As I've just mentioned, this is why the Bible reveals God as Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Eternally interacting and dynamic love for one another from all of eternity. And the love that the Father has for the Son, who is the Father's greatest delight, Christ has for the Christian. Jesus is saying in verse 9, that for those of you who are my friends, for those of you who have repented and trusted in me, for those of you who have come into the knowledge of the will of my Father in me as I reveal the mystery of his will, for those of you who are his friends, I love you with the same unchanging, inexhaustible, world-creating, overflowing love 
that God the Father has for me and has had for all of eternity. Have you ever stopped to think that Jesus loves you that much? That our love waxes and wanes and often grows cold, but his is immutable. It never changes because he's God, very God. Do you have a hard time believing that Jesus loves you that much and that because you're in Christ, the Father loves you that much? Brother and sister, listen to me. This is one of those things where it's shallow enough for a toddler to splash in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And it's this simple yet profound truth. The Father has no less love for you than he has for his own son from all of eternity if you are his friend in Christ. That's a staggering thought. You can't exhaust his love. You can't wear him out. My kids wear me out. And there are times where my love for them practically displayed waxes and wanes. But have you ever stopped to think that Christ's love practically displayed never waxes and wanes for you? He never gets annoyed with you. He never gets tired of hearing from you, even when you keep asking for the same things over and over and over again. You can't exhaust him. You cannot exasperate him that his love is a divine love that flows out of the very fount of his triune fellowship from all of eternity. You can't even begin to tap into its depth. To have communion with Christ, to be a branch tethered to the vine, is to have that become your life and your sap, feeding you and nourishing you. To have communion with Christ is to walk in the daily experience, growing in the daily experience of that love, the very love that the Father has for the Son. That it is that love that sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. It's that love that caused him to go to the cross and bear the sins of those whom he calls friends so that they might be forgiven. And that Christ's love is the Father's love. A love that only God could initiate. It's a love that saves, it's a love that redeems, and it is a love that restores. So we've seen that Christ loves like the Father. But secondly, we're going to see here in verse 10 through 14 that Christ loves, here's our response, Christ loves and we obey. Look at verse 10. He says, if, consider the conditional language, if you keep my commandments, well, then you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is what Jesus wants for fruitful Christian living. This is at the heart of the unique revelation of God. That he is a God of love revealed in his son and that is going to be the pattern for those who are in right relationship to him. That's why the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbors yourself. Why? Because God is love. That's the foundation. So if I'm going to be in relationship with God and this is a truth that we find throughout the scriptures then any God that I make a God in my life is going to shape me. I'm going to become like what I worship. The psalmist refers to those who build idols and says they become just like them, spiritually dead. They can't talk, they can't speak, they can't do anything to the glory of God. They are spiritually inanimate. They become just like them. 
That whether you're worshiping the one true God or whether you're worshiping a false God, whether it be the opinions of others or of your own possessions and money or whether it be your own reputation, whatever it may be, you will become like what you worship. This is a core biblical principle from the beginning of the Bible to the end that we become like what we worship. It's why Moses, when he when he looks at Israel after forming for themselves a calf, talks about them as breaking loose and running wild. That they become just like the wild calf that they've created. Well, here what he's saying is that to know God's love, to come into the knowledge of that revelation, is to love like God. It's to become like him. And so the pattern for us is the pattern of love. And our enjoyment of God's love as a daily reality of our communion with him depends on our remaining in us, which is why Jesus tells us, going back to verse 10, or, that we remain in it by obeying his commandments. But now in order to encourage our obedience, Jesus follows up in verse 11 and says this, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be full. Christ wants us to share in his joy and experience it in the fullest measure. But the secret to experiencing his joy is obedience to his word. You see, Jesus is essentially turning the wisdom of the world on its head here. Everyone in the world wants to be happy. That's an indisputable fact, but happiness fades quickly, doesn't it? That's why we tirelessly pursue the things that we think will make us happy, and every day is a new pursuit. Well, Jesus here is talking about joy as the byproduct of, obedi of, of obedience to him. And we don't really believe that. We have a hard time believing it, at least. There's a lot of joyless Christians, which, biblically speaking, is a contradiction in terms. There's a lot of joyless Christians because we aren't really convinced that obeying Jesus is the way to joy. But this is exactly what Jesus is teaching. No, for us, obedience becomes a hard slog because it, it seems to cut across all of our deepest desires, short-circuiting the things that we really want to pursue. Oh, but that just shows how deeply sin is still ingrained in us. Jesus says, if you want to know joy, then you need to obey me because my commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3. They're no more burdensome than wings are to a bird. How many of you, when you go to the backyard, you see a bird running around just going, oh, got to fly again. They spread them and it's just lift off. The wind takes them. Well, in the same way that a bird doesn't go through life thinking, oh, if only I could be free from these tireless wings, the Christian doesn't go through life thinking, oh, I got to obey Jesus. What a beating. No, like wings on a bird, obedience, according to Jesus here in John 15, that is where we get lift off. It's where the joy comes because the commandments of Jesus are the atmosphere of where we breathe the fresh air of our freedom. That's why he says, glancing back at verse 10, that this is how, that is obedience to him, this is how we abide in his love. You See that there at the end of verse 10? that you will abide in my love if you keep my commandments. He doesn't say that if you obey, you'll be doing your duty. That if you do your duty, your abiding in the greatest delight of the Father 
namely the love of the Son. And you have to get this, that obedience in the Christian life is not external conformity merely. External conformity, looking good for those you want to look good in front of because that's the Christian-y thing to do, that always fades. It always falls to the side. It always fails. But the kind of obedience that Jesus is talking about here is the obedience that's rooted in a love and a gratitude in the heart that really wants to please the Father just as Christ desired every day of his life to please the Father. That we have to come back to this over and over again because we all want this kind of joy. And Jesus is telling us how to get it how to walk in it, how to experience it, how to enjoy it. Do you believe what he's saying? Do you believe the simple words of Jesus in John 15? This joy comes to us, comes to you, and you begin to see the power of Christ, the vine producing in you the, the branch, the kind of fruit that honors him. When you begin to say that I, wanted, that I do want to obey God's commandments, that I do want to overcome this temptation, Lord, help me, give me the strength. When you begin to see sin defeated in your life, when you be, see yourself a little less selfish, a little less proud, a little less defensive, a little less bitter, and yet you see yourself becoming more humble and more generous and more forgiving and more outgoing, and there's no kind of joy like that to daily experience that kind of joy by abiding in the love of Christ that motivates us to walk in obedience. That's the outcome of obedience, is joy. That's what Jesus is teaching. But let's be clear on one other point. Our obedience doesn't earn love. It doesn't earn love. Rather, this obedience ensures that we abide in that love and enjoy its daily experience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. But we too often, we buy the lie that the commands of Christ are somehow restricting. That they're, arbitrary, they're an arbitrary hindrance to our freedom. But the way that God's people get to enjoy living in his fellowship and experience his joy is always by obeying him, and it's always been this way. You remember when God brought Israel out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, redeemed them from slavery? What was the first place that he took them? It was Sinai, wasn't it? But why? Why was that the first stop on the road to Canaan? It was to give them the law as an expression of his heart of love as a self-revelation of how to live in the enjoyment of his presence, which as long as they obeyed him, would continue to abide in the midst of them. But it's no different in the New Testament. In fact, it's even better in the New Testament. That to please the Father gave the Son the deepest satisfaction and joy. And Jesus is saying, model your life after mine. Do the things that please the Father. Obey my commands and you'll abide in my love and your joy will be full. And so it should come as no surprise then that in verses 12 to 14, that to obey Christ, to obey his commandments, is to love like Christ. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment. If you have a pen, you should circle that, and you should point it up to verse 10. If you keep my commandment. Now I'm going to tell you, verse 12, what it is. I'm not going to make you guess. There's no guesswork. You don't got to make it up as you go. 
I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. Here it is. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. The same sacrificial love that Jesus has for us is to be the model for our lives. But before it becomes the model for our lives, it has to become the all-sufficient source of forgiveness from the Father. Look back at John 13. Let me show you something. This verse back in 15, verse 12, is pointing forward to verses 13 and 14, but it's also pointing backwards to what Jesus had already taught in John 13. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Sound familiar? You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. But isn't it interesting that he says at the end of verse 33, where I'm going, you cannot come. So Simon, always being Simon, verse 36, says to him, well, Lord, where are you going? And he answers him, listen, same thing. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Brothers and sisters, the cross is not primarily a moral example. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the good news of Christianity is not look at the cross and try to love as much as Jesus does so that God will be happy with you, so that God will accept you, so that perhaps the scales of justice would tip in your favor when you stand before him one day. Peter said, or Jesus tells Peter, that's impossible. I want you to look at one word here. He says, you can't follow me in this kind of love. Well, then where does Jesus get off saying in John 15 that you're to love like me if we can't follow him? Here's the key word. But you will follow, verse 36, afterwards. The only way that the cross can become an example for you to follow is if the cross first becomes an expiation of your sins being utterly removed. It can't be an example until it's first expiation. That you cannot follow until sins are removed and forgiveness is given. That you need a new heart and new life. You need to be reconciled to the Father toward whom you are in a relationship of enmity. That is a warlike state because you have offended him in his glory. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is true of you. And no amount of trying to love like Jesus is going to right that ship. That you have to come to the foot of the cross in all faith and you have to recognize that it's there that the Son of God did what you could never do. And that was make atonement for your sins. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. So that those who are unjust and unrighteous might become just and might become righteous in the sight of God. That comes only by faith in the finished work of Christ. Have you trusted in Christ that way? Friend, until you have trusted in Christ in that way, until you have become a branch tethered to the vine and now have that love exhibited on the cross, coursing through your spiritual veins, so to speak, like sap in a vine, there is no way that you can love like Christ loves. It is impossible. You cannot follow him there. 
unless he becomes the very source of that love for you, and that only by faith. We'll look back at John 15. So he says the same sacrificial love, verse 12, that Jesus has for us is to be the model for our lives, and then he elaborates on it in verses 13 and 14. He says this, greater love has no one than this, and someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do you see the logic here? You cannot love God without loving Christ. We cannot obey Christ without obeying his commands. We cannot obey his commands without loving one another. And we cannot love one another unless we're willing to lay down our lives for one another. Because this is what love looks like. It's not affirming at all costs. It's being willing to die for the other person's good even when that person may not recognize love as love. And that's what it means to belong to the church. It's what it means to be part of God's people. There's so many ideas out there about what it means to be part of a church, so many images. Some people perhaps view it as kind of a Costco where I get a membership card and whenever I need something, I pop in and I can get something at a discount, access to the pastor, a handful of friends. But the church isn't a Costco. Some people perhaps view it as a, as a beauty parlor where, well, I don't really like the ugly parts of my life, and so this is where I get to come in and pumice out the rough spots. But it's not a beauty parlor either. Some people might view it as a university, perhaps, where I'm gaining credits and passing courses, perhaps in my own little competitive way, so that I can graduate as a mature Christian with honors. That is not what the church is either. All of these are distortions. The fruitful life, according to John 15, is obedience that means serving one another in love. Jesus' aim in life was to please his Father, and that is why he loved his friends. So you see, what kills love isn't ultimately hatred. It's self-love. That's what kills marriages. That's what breaks up friendships. And that's what even splits churches. It's selfishness. It's self-love rather than love for Christ. It's saying, what am I getting out of this and how can these people meet my needs rather than what am I able to give to others to meet their needs? In what ways might I lay down my own life, my own discomfort, my own sleep, my own money, my own square footage? I loved what Wendy prayed, even the cleanliness of my own home to practice messy hospitality with neighbors and brothers and sisters. How do I lay down my life for others in this way? So Christ loves and we obey. So most of our time on that point, sermon's getting away from me a little bit. So we'll, we'll spend a few minutes here on these final two points. But Christ loves and we obey. But in verse 15, we find our third point, that Christ reveals and we understand. Notice a change of category here in verse 15. Jesus goes from the image of a vine and its branches to the contrast between a slave and a friend. So we live in a context here in in Texas, where most people you run into on the street might say, yeah, I love God. But in reality, they have no interest in listening to him, much less obeying him. We live in a context where others might say, yeah, I love God, but don't talk too much to me about obedience because that's just legalism and I'm under grace. But what Jesus is teaching here is that there's no opposition between love and obedience. Friends... Obey as friends, not as slaves. That's what makes Christianity utterly unique from every other man-made religion in the world. 
So the contrast is not between obeying and not obeying. It's between understanding and not understanding. That's at the heart of Jesus' friendship language. That's what he's talking about. So this friendship with God that he's talking about here, you are my friends, the friendship that God wants to share with us in Christ isn't a buddy-buddy relationship. It's not a jogging partner. It's not a golf buddy. It's not a coffee friend. It's not a Jesus that you go on dates with. It's not any of those kinds of things. It's not anything, really, with our own modern idea of friendship of, of kind of a buddy. We read that into the text, I think, wrongly. No, a friend here is one who has been made aware of the Father's purposes and longs to fulfill the Father's will. That's what Jesus means by friends. D.A. Carson captures this well. He says, an absolute potentate, that is a king, demands obedience in all of his subjects. His slaves are simply told what to do, while his friends are informed of his thinking, enjoy his confidence, learn to obey with a sense of privilege and with full understanding of their master's heart. That all of the knights around the, around the round table are still showing allegiance to King Arthur. They still have to obey King Arthur, but they are his trusted friends. They have been brought into the inside of the king's mind and the king's heart and what he is all about. And that is what Jesus means here. That's what it means elsewhere in the Old Testament. Abraham and Moses are the only people in the Old Testament who are referred to as the friends of God. And it's not because they were chummy with God. The reason that Abraham and Moses were referred to as friends of God is because they enjoyed extraordinary access to the mind and the purposes of God. They were recipients of his covenant promises. As he explained to them how it was that he was going to undo everything that had gone wrong in the world because of sin. Those promises ultimately finding their yes and amen in his son Jesus. That's what it means to be a friend of God. And so here Jesus' absolute right to command his friends is in no way diminished. It's not buddy-buddy. It's not we're on the level playing field. But he is taking pains to inform his friends that these are my motives, these are my plans, and these are my purposes. I am, in the way that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, letting you into the mind of God. That's what it means to be his friend. See the pattern here in verse 15? I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So friendship is rooted in revelation. The disciples have come to see in Jesus the fulfillment of the Father's plan. He is the real vine. He's all that Israel has failed to be. And so in his teaching, yeah, he reveals propositional truth about who God is and who he is and what he's come to do. But he reveals so much more than propositional truth, that he is the very incarnation of God. He's revealed all he's learned from the Father in his life of perfect obedience and in laying his life down for his friends on the cross. This is why the Apostle Paul is able to write in Ephesians chapter 1, in him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will in Christ. To be a friend of God is to have lavished on you the riches of his grace and wisdom and insight and the mystery of his will as embodied in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. It's to have the inside track. 
It's to be in the round table with King Jesus. That's what it means to be his friend. So what he's making known here is not just propositional, it's relational. It's knowing God because Jesus has revealed him to us. And so Christ loves us and calls us to obey. Not as slaves, but as friends. And as his friends, Christ reveals and calls us to understand. But as you would imagine, gaining access to such revelation runs the danger of puffing up the disciples. Yeah, we're pretty special. Yeah, we're doing all right for ourselves. The very Son of God is just letting us know the very mind of God. The temptation to boast in themselves would be great, and so Jesus tells them in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he would give it to you. So we've seen that Christ loves and we obey. Christ reveals and we understand. And then finally, here in verse 16, Christ chooses and we bear fruit. If we understand the purposes of God and we're trying to obey the Lord Jesus, it's not because we're wiser and better than other people. It's because God has intervened with his grace and he's opened up our eyes to obey his word and believe. We've seen in verses 9 through 14 that this great love comes with the responsibility of obedience, but now we see that this understanding comes with the responsibility of mission, of going and bearing fruit, that the fruit would abide. But all of that is rooted in the humility that comes through God's electing grace. So you can see the evangelistic focus here. Jesus is talking about going and bearing fruit as he sends his disciples into the world to make more disciples. But the fruit that Jesus is talking about here isn't just evangelism and converts. We see in the context of this whole chapter that the fruit that Jesus is talking about is effectiveness that brings glory to God in every situation in life. It's the fruit of Christ-like character. It's the fruit of obedience. It's the fruit of love for one another. It's the fruit of knowing God's word. It's the fruit of praying according to God's will and seeing him in verse 16 answer our prayers. It's anything and everything that shows the life of God in the souls of his people. That is what lasting fruit is. So if you've been called by Christ, you should be bearing this kind of fruit. And you're asking the Father in the name of Jesus to give you this kind of fruitfulness is a mark that you, in fact, belong to Christ. But we don't have to go away from this passage terribly depressed. I imagine some of you at this point are going, man, I failed in this, I haven't done this well, I haven't lived up in these ways. The goal of this passage isn't to leave you in that way. That's why Jesus finishes with this phrase in verse 16, and I think we should make this the motto of our week. So that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. If you have a New International Version, I like the NIV, but it mistakenly puts the word then right there after, after your fruit should abide, then whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he would give it to you. That's a terrible translation. Because what it's applying, well, first of all, it's not in the original Greek, but secondly, it translates it, and it seems to suggest that Jesus has chosen his disciples, and he's appointed them to bear fruit, and when they bear fruit, then on the basis of their fruit bearing, the Father will give them whatever they ask. That the Father working for you through prayer is contingent on your working really hard for Him. That's moralism, and that is not the heart of the gospel. That's not at all what's being talked about here. So if you have an NIV Bible and you see that word T-H-E-N, then take your pen, cross it out. It's not helpful. 
Fruitfulness is not the precondition for answered prayer. Answered prayer is fruitfulness. But if you want to be an obedient Christian, you need to ask the Father to give you the strength and the will and the joy in doing what He commands. That if you want to be a Christian who understands what Christ has revealed about the Father when you come to His Word, perhaps in summer studies this summer, or as you gather with one another, or even here as we gather as a church, well, then you need to ask the Father who enables you to understand it. And if you want to bear fruit, oh, ask the Father to help you do it. Because whatever you ask the Father in Christ's name, which is essentially to say, according to the Father's will revealed in Christ, then He will do it for you. Because you are in Christ. And He never refuses His own Son. And insofar as the Father cannot refuse His own Son, He cannot refuse those who are in His Son. That if you come to Him in the name of Christ, according to His will, He will do these things for you. But let me give you a little qualifier. Don't be surprised at the way that God may answer. He may very well be answering your prayer, but in an altogether different way than you think He is. That He may, in fact, lead you into all sorts of testing situations where you're going to face trials and tribulation. In fact, that's what the rest of John 15 is all about. But you and I need to take this seriously. You need to ask Him to make us fruitful Christians. You need to ask Him to fill us with joy as we seek to obey Him. And you need to get settled on what's really important in life. And that is the reality of responding in obedience to the love of God. Responding in understanding to the revelation of God. And responding with fruitfulness to the electing grace of God. Let's pray.